With that, go ahead and jump into the message today. It is Father's Day, and as such, normally we'd be zoning in on manhood. In fact, I had prepared a message for this day uh, a long time ago addressing the necessity of manhood, and I was really excited about that message. However, for several reasons, I felt compelled to go a different direction and, and preach a different message that the Lord had laid in my heart. With the pandemic over the last four months, we, we knew we had to create some space between us, obviously, as they have, have told us about. But that space has showed us something, I believe. It showed us the necessity of our church family. It's interesting to me how many people have come to me and said, I miss my church family in the middle of all of the pandemic restrictions. And that's why we wanted to have a family reunion today where we had an opportunity to get together as a family and fellowship with each other. These are things that we see the New Testament church doing. And as crazy as it might sound, I think sometimes breaking bread with a brother and sister in Christ is just as important as praying with somebody at an altar. God can work in both situations. How many of you have had a relationship in your life, a friend, a brother or sister in Christ who was there for you in every single aspect and you're not sure where you would be in your faith today if it wasn't for that friendship in your life. How many of you have had that kind of relationship, right? Probably all of us if we start looking over the totality of our life. So in that spirit today, I want to talk to you about the blueprint of the church. We have been in this series called The Blueprint, and we've been looking at doctrinal beliefs based on the Word of God that allow us to fulfill the Christ-honoring life. It's like knowing all the features on your phone so that you can use it to its full potential. We believe that God has laid out some very specific teachings for our life, that when we apply them, we can live to the full potential that God has created us to live. We've talked about the, the salvation of humanity. We've talked about the return of Christ. We've talked about communion and baptism to this point. And I believe that the recent events have shown us the necessity of the local church and how the local church can be the, pro the solution to the problems that are facing the world. As I said a moment ago, the COVID-19 situation has shown, I believe, the value of the local church for us one to another, how brothers and sisters in Christ add value to each other's lives and the necessity of corporate worship. And I would also argue that the tension that our country are facing right now could be solved with the gospel message presented through the local church. And so I'm here to tell you this morning that I love the local church. I love this church and I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I planned on starting this message by telling some jokes on the church. You know, for example, it's really easy to make fun of the church sometimes because we do weird things, right? Have you ever seen the church bulletins, you know, like uh, tonight the pastor's preaching on hell for a preview, come here the choir. Have you ever seen that church sign? Okay, maybe not. You need to look it up. There's good stuff out there. Yeah, I thought about telling some jokes because we can do little weird things, you know, as family, we can be weird from time to time. It's just like every other family, you know, Charity's family who might be watching this morning and I'm throwing them under the bus. She just mouthed, they are. So be careful what you say. They put chili on spaghetti. Okay. That's weird. I don't, if you do that, that's an abomination. I'm sure somewhere there is a word that says you cannot put chili on spaghetti, but we all have these little weird intricacies in our families. And the church is no exception. But as I started thinking about it, I, I couldn't do that because I love the church. I didn't want to mock the church this morning. I didn't want to, even in fun, I didn't want to talk. Why? Because I love the church. Some of my best memories are from church. 
was thinking about how, you know, you talk about those relationships, those, those things. I might have told this story, and if I have, I apologize. But I was thinking this morning about all, all the highlights of my life are almost surrounded by the people that I knew in church or church experiences. When I was 18, I got to go on a missions trip to Vietnam. And when we got over there, they were explaining the culture to us, and it's a, it's a negotiating culture. Everything's about bargaining and haggling. So when you go to the market to buy something, you were not to pay full price because that would be an insult. And so the, the cultural mindset was that if we negotiate the price, if I go up to you and you're asking $5 and I offer you $2 and then we settle on $3.50, that everybody feels like they've got a deal and that it was fair. They're all about honor and they want to honor one another. And so my friends and I are like, well, yeah, we can do that. We're, we're Americans. We know how to haggle. And so we go out and my friends just to spend money. They just wanted to see if they could do it. They see this lady coming carrying the rice hats, you know, like they would wear uh, when they are harvesting the rice. And so they thought, I want to buy a hat. And she had like about 20 of them on there. And I'm just watching this play out. And they go to this lady and they start talking. Now she wants $20 for this rice hat. They live on about $2 a day. So you're talking about, you know, about two grand for this, this rice hat is what she's asking in American money. The exchange rate was 15,000 to one. So you can just go ahead and do the math and think about that. So they start to negotiate for this rice hat and they end up spending like $15 on this rice hat and they think they got a deal. All right, this is good stuff. So we continue on. No joke, we get down two blocks, they're selling them for like a buck fifty, all right? So now they have this $15 rice hat, me and my friends. Or I don't buy one, I'm not that dumb, but they did. And so anyways, they have this rice hat and now they decide we are going to guard this thing with our life because we paid about 15% more than we, or 15 times what we should have. And so they keep it all week and then we go to get back on the airplane to fly home. Now, as we're flying home, you have to put this rice hat through customs. And so every time they go, they barely squeeze it through the conveyor belt to x-ray this thing to see what kind of, you know, paraphernalia is underneath this hat. So they protect it. They put it in the overhead bin. They just keep it safe. And, and they're just worried about this hat. We get back to America. And that conveyor belt's about this much shorter than every other conveyor belt. And you see this guy standing there, and he's making probably eight fifty an hour, and he doesn't care about this rice hat. And so he sees this rice hat. It doesn't fit in the conveyor. He takes it and just crushes the rice hat. It sends it on through. I laughed so hard. And my friends, it looked like we just shot their dog because of this hat. What's the point of this story? That was two decades ago, and I'm still telling the story. Why? Because some of the best experiences in my life are surrounded by church. If I started telling stories on camp, I could be here the rest of the day. Fun things that happen, powerful things that happen. At camp, I have some of the greatest stories, people I met, things that happened at camp, just great things. And I could also take you back to Turner Falls that was modeled after Auschwitz, and we could go look at the place that I was called into the ministry. You think I'm kidding. I found a picture because right now it's camp season and, and, you know, in your phone and Facebook, they show up memories. One camp, I'm not kidding. <laughs> I promise you our prison system is cleaner than that old campground was. <laughs> I remember those times. I have a witness too. Cody knows what I'm talking about. He's like, amen. He's going to get delivered after service. <laughs> I'm telling you, greatest memories around camp. I found Jesus at church. Probably most of you did too. Met my wife at church. My best friends are surrounded by church. The church was there for me in my lowest moments, and they celebrated with me in my highest moments. I love the people, and I love to serve the people. Now, I'm telling you, 
I love the church. Now, let me tell you, when I read my Bible, I see that to be the design of the church. The church wasn't meant to necessarily be an organization. The church was meant to be a family. As the purpose of the church. We were not to live our Christian faith in isolation and in a vacuum, but rather we were meant to live it in community. So when we say welcome to the family, we don't say that to be cliche. We don't say that as a catchphrase. We say that because when we look at Scripture, the Bible says that we are saved and we are adopted by the Heavenly Father into the family of God. It's deeply profound and theological when we say welcome to our Family. Now, a lot of people in our culture today are asking the question, is the church really important? Is the church relevant? Does the church even add value to society? And I would say, without a doubt, yes. The people sitting next to you are of incredible value in your life and in this world when we're living out our Christian faith. Here's the thing we have to understand. The church is Christ's idea. It's a Christ-centered institution. Jesus, when he established the church, he, he got his disciples together and he asked them, who do you say that I am? And, and, and Peter spoke up and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he said, upon that confession of faith, I will build my church. And so any church that's holding on to a true confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is a Christ-centered church. It is Christ's idea and he intends for us to be here. However simple as this may sound, it is very difficult to live out. From the foundational understanding, there's a lot of questions that probably get brought up then. Well, if this is God's idea, if this is Jesus' idea, then what is the church supposed to be doing? It's interesting you look out into the culture. Everybody seems to have a different idea of what the church is supposed to be doing. A lot of them aren't in the church, mind you. That's why we got to stick to the Word. Why are some churches terrible? If this is Christ's idea, why are some churches terrible? Why are some pastors evil? If if church is God's idea, why are there some pastors that are only trying to talk people out of giving their money to them? Why is there some flaws if this is God's idea? Well, the answer is very simple. Because whenever humanity gets involved in anything, from time to time, our own ambitions, our own sins, our own ideas start to permeate into something that was supposed to be good, and we mess it up. That's what happened with creation. God created a good, we messed it up. God created a church, and from time to time, humanity can get involved and mess it up. However, what I would argue is this. In spite of all the the churches that might be wrong, in spite of all the pastors who might be wrong, in spite of all the Christians who might be hypocrites, there are far more who love Jesus and far more who add value to society than those who hinder. Why? Because Jesus is in the middle of this whole thing. And when Jesus is in the middle of it, good things are going to happen. Now, today I want to show you four common analogies from Scripture that describe the church What should the church be doing? Well, Jesus tells us in his word, he gives us four analogies, four illustrations that when we take them and we apply them to the church, we will be doing what he's called us to do and we'll be winning the loss, we'll be adding value to the society, and we'll be a family to one another. Within these analogies, we'll see the value of the church to Christians. We'll see the value of the church to you. We'll see the value of the church to the world. We'll see the value of the church to the calling and the requirement of the church. And we'll see within these analogies our marching orders. 
in the church. In short, we'll see the doctrine of the church. So the first one I want to show you is this. The church is the flock of Christ. John 10 verses 1 through 6 say this. Jesus is speaking. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. He's speaking of himself. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used to them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Jesus is telling us in this passage that all true believers are like sheep, and he is the great shepherd. He is coming in, and he leads the sheep, and the sheep know his voice. Do you know the voice of the Lord in your own life? Can you recognize when your shepherd is speaking to you? Followers of Christ, we are the flock. We know the voice of the shepherd. Why? Because he came and he found us the first time. If you're a Christian, at some point, you've heard the Lord call your name. You realize that you are in desperate need of him. And you realize that you are like a lost sheep, harassed and helpless, and you needed a shepherd in your life, and you surrendered to him. You repented of your own old ways. You heard his voice. We need to continue to hear his voice. Why? Because the shepherd knows the sheep intimately. He knows the needs of the sheep. He knows the ones who are older and need to walk slower. And he knows the, young, the ones that are young and full of enthusiasm that want to wander off from time to time. He knows the sheep. He knows their strengths and he knows their skills. There's a personal touch in what he does. He defends the sheep. He feeds the sheep. And he watches over the sheep. There's familiarity between the shepherd and the sheep. They know each other. Why? Because they live life together. He said, the shepherd goes in front of the sheep. He makes the way for us. He's not taking us somewhere he hasn't already been himself. From time to time, we might feel like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But when we're following the shepherd, he is before us. Where there's nothing for us to fear. Church, we are the flock of Jesus Christ. And if God and Christ is the great shepherd, then we have to submit as individuals and as a church to his leading. This is not some mystical action. It's an intuition of the Holy Spirit leading us in everyday life. Where we live to honor Him. Where we listen for His voice in the decisions that we have to make. Where we listen for the conviction of the Holy Spirit before we sin. Where we listen to the unction and the, and the, and the probing of the Holy Spirit on our heart when we're around lost people to know what to say. And under His leading, there's protection, there's provision. Under his leading from time to time, we'll try to stray and he'll guard us back in. We are under no danger when we're with the shepherd because he can protect us. Now, Jesus also says something very interesting in this context. He said, as the flock, we ignore the voice of strangers. And let me tell you, in our world right now, there's a lot of voices trying to speak to the church. And we need to ignore those voices. We need to listen to one voice. 
Right now, we cannot allow the political voices to ring louder in our ears than we hear the great shepherd ringing in our ears. We can't look to some sort of leader in this world to be our savior. We can't look to some sort of political leader to be our, our guide. We need to look to the great shepherd and follow him. We don't listen to the distractions of the world. Furthermore, we don't listen to false teaching and false doctrine. We don't listen to things that just make us feel better. The world has so many false teachings out there that try to dupe people into doing what they want them to do for their own selfish gain. But we listen to wise counsel built upon the shepherd's voice. Furthermore, we do not follow our own emotional whims. How many of you know sometimes a strange voice in our own life is our own emotional whims trying to lead us in a direction just to make us feel better? Instead, rather, we only listen to the great shepherd. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied of the day Christ would become our great shepherd. In Ezekiel 34, verse 22 through 24, it says this, I will rescue my flock, and they will no longer be a prey. You're not... You're not prey to the enemy anymore because you're following the great shepherd. He goes on to say, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them in their, and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I'm the Lord, I've spoken. What an encouragement is this, to trust the great shepherd and follow him and him only. As a church and as individuals, let's listen to the voice of the shepherd for our life. What's the church supposed to do? The church is supposed to listen to the great shepherd. And when we listen to the great shepherd, I promise you we will do what he's asking us to do and we will fulfill his will in our life and in our community. So first, the church is the flock of Christ. The second thing I want you to see is the church is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 14 says this, says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slave and free, and all are made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then skip down to verse 27, it says this, now, you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. Think about the power and the implication of this passage. The church is the body of Christ. Look how this passage beautifully ties us all together and how we are to share in the spirit of Christ. And that makes us the body of Christ. The church is uniquely equipped and uniquely unified group of individuals formed for every good work for the glory of God. When you start looking around in this church, what's amazing is all the people that have different types of talents. Our worship team did a great job this morning, right? Sounded really good. They sang, I can't sing. Sound like a dying cat. I mean, it's terrible. I don't even sing to myself. I've told you that before. I do not I like people like, I love singing in the car. No, I don't like singing in the car. Why? Because I like hearing good things and my voice isn't one of them. There's people who have been gifted to sing. So where would our church be at if we didn't have gifted people to lead us in worship to the Lord? We'd be in trouble. How many of you think the parking lot, or excuse me, the grass and everything looked great this weekend? Had two guys come out here to take care of it, Charles and 
and Bruce come out here and they took care of all that. It looks amazing, right? They've been gifted for that. Foyer looks amazing. When you go out here to the kids' center today, it's all decorated. It looks amazing. Marsha Moore took care of all that. What's the point in all this? That God has gifted different one of us. We go around this church, we have so many volunteers. We can start going around naming names of everybody who does something different. What's the point? We're uniquely equipped and uniquely unified in order to accomplish what God has gifted us to do. It's a beautiful analogy. Now here's the key though, is that we all have to be together. The, part, the, the parts of the body only work in unison, and it's only beautiful when it works in unison. For example, I love my wife's hair. It's one of my favorite features about her. But her hair is amazing on her head. It is no longer attractive if it's on my food. Amen. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you'd be like, man, it is weird, isn't it? Like, like it looks like this is kind of morbid, but you know, right? Charity's arm looks fine. It looked weird on the floor, away from her body. It's kind of repulsive, isn't it? Kind of like something's off about this. And you know what, though? That's how a lot of churches are, because we're not unified. We're not working together. And then we wonder, why is the world not attracted to the church? Because it's like, there's an arm over here and there's a leg over here. It looks like a bloodbath. Nobody wants to be a part of that. And in the church sometimes, right? I mean, we've all seen it. We allow this cord to come between us. We allow fractions to pull us apart. And then we wonder why nobody wants to be a part of it. Because it's repulsive. What the body is supposed to do is to be equipped and unified together to accomplish the work of the Lord. And when it's working in harmony, it's amazing to witness. So the question is not, are we the body of Christ? The question is, are we going to be a star athlete or are we going to have a dad bod? Right? Are we going to be, t- Charity, thank you for laughing at my joke. I appreciate that. Are we going to, are we going to be together working or are we going to be fractured apart, be repulsive? As the body of Christ, we are only effective and only attractive when we're working in unison for the glory of Christ and the benefit of other people. It's amazing to see how uniquely equipped we are. We're a diverse group of people. And when you read this whole chapter in context, we we preached on this actually not long ago. You see that everybody has these different spiritual gifts and has put them all together and the Holy Spirit powers them for His will so that what? We can accomplish His purpose. We can bring Him glory and honor. It's His sovereign design. The church is His paintbrush. Therefore, we have to be unified. Race and age and social economical difference, none of those things matter when you're inside the church because we all need each other and we all play a role and we all have to be together. I believe this point is especially important in our current situation as a country. And I was praying for our country and I was thinking about what's the solution. We have, we have so many different people angry at each other and all these things are happening and, and, and we all know it, we've all witnessed it. What is the solution to the loss of life? What is the solution to the rise? What is the solution to the pain and suffering? And the gospel message is the solution. The fact that Jesus died for our sins everybody would just stop and realize that we're all sinners, 
Well, that would go a long ways, wouldn't it? What's amazing is that there's one thing every single one of us have in common. Doesn't matter if you live in J America, New York City, Florida, California, it doesn't matter where you live at, we are all sinners. We all need Jesus. The gospel message changes hearts and it changes life. And we need to see a change in our world. And the only change that's going to happen, mark my words, the only change that's truly going to happen, that's truly going to have a positive outcome, is when the local church starts preaching the gospel to the individuals in this nation. This is not going to be a top-down fix. It's going to be a grassroots movement where people say, you know what, I'm sick and tired of not telling people about Jesus. I'm sick and tired of watching people broken and hurting, and I'm going to tell them the word of God. Let our church be one where we as individuals are telling every single person that we're around about who Jesus is. First, the church is the flock of Christ. So we need to follow the voice of the great shepherd. Second, the church is the body of Christ. So we need to do the work that Christ has equipped us to do. The third, the church is the bride of Christ. Now, not to break the levity of this moment, but Ronnie, you can go ahead and fire up that oil, buddy, because we're getting close. Might as well have a little bit of fun in church, right? The church is the bride of Christ. Revelations 19, verses 6 through 8 says this. Then I heard, John the Revelator is in heaven. He sees this vision. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty pails of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us Rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. Weddings are ridiculously expensive in America. We all know that. We've all heard the statistics. The average cost associated is just staggering. What's really interesting is I read this last week that there was a lady wanting to have this big extravagant wedding in Canada, and she started charging her guests $1,500 to attend that wedding. How I many of you guys are like, yeah, that ain't happening? <laughs> Amen, right? Uh, you have to pay it. You know, I'm not paying $1,500 to come to your wedding. However, the most expensive wedding of all time is still yet to happen. And the most expensive of all time will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is a wedding that comes at the price point of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this might be an unfamiliar term for you. What is the marriage supper of the Lamb? Well, the the wedding of Christ is a symbolic image that's used time and time again in Scripture to show how the church is gathered to Christ at the end of all things as we know it, to spend eternity with Him. This, in short, is the marriage supper of the Lamb that we just read about. This is the pivotal point where everything and everyone who is a Christian is completely saved from the world and every tear is wiped from our eye and we enjoy the company of God and Christ for eternity. What's heaven going to be like? I I can only imagine what that's going to be like. The Bible gives us a dimension of the new Jerusalem, the city, the capital city in heaven, and it's about half the landmass of the continental United States. And it says it has 12 gates that are open and it describes people coming and going. So what are the gates? I don't know. Heaven is just unimaginable in our minds right now. The entrance requirement to get to heaven is very simple. It's to be the bride of Christ. 
And what that means is that I have surrendered my life to Jesus. I've put my faith in him. I've confessed him as my Lord and Savior. In short, I'm brought into the church. That makes me a bride of Christ. This is important because if you look in Revelation in the previous passage to the one we just read, you see another woman described, and this woman is the prostitute. The prostitute is every idol, false religion, and sin associated with humanity. And so there's a massive difference between the prostitute and the bride of Christ. The the prostitute symbolizes anyone who sells out and gives themselves up for money or pleasure or success or fame or any of those things. The bride, the believer, are those who are a contrast to the world who come pure and white before Christ. Now, how does that happen? Well, verse 7 tells us that the bride has prepared ourselves, and we as a church have to prepare ourselves to be pure and white before Jesus. Now, some of you are thinking, well, now wait a second. Well, what does that mean? Because that, I, I thought this was about works. It's not about works. Well, I still sin. I'm not perfect. It's not about perfection. What it's saying is, when you look at the whole context of Revelation, to be pure and white, meaning to have that that white uh, uh, linen that the Lord is talking about, means to remain faithful to Christ in a fallen world. Slant of your heart is towards Jesus. It means enduring hardship in the midst of suffering. It means trusting God in the face of martyrdom. It means obeying Jesus and taking the gospel to people on the earth. Notice that the garment was given to the bride. So in preparation, you're not earning anything. God still gives it to you. Through the Word and through the Holy Spirit, we are washed and we're clean. Our efforts are remaining faithful to our confession to Him. That's what it means to have the pure, bright linen on your life. It reflects cleanliness and purity, loyalty and faithfulness to Christ. Notice that this passage says that the White linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Again, this is not about meriting heaven, but rather it's our response to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. We respond to his mercy and his grace with obedience and faithful works of service. And it's like a white robe for the church. Listen, church, we we have to be a group of people who are living righteous before Christ. We never achieve perfection. However, we must be striving for obedience. There has to be contrast in our life to the world. People need to be able to look at us and see fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life. That's our calling as a church. First, the church is the flock of Christ. We need to follow the voice of the great shepherd. Second, the church is the body of Christ. We need to do the works that Christ has equipped us to do. Third, the church is the bride of Christ. We have to make ourselves ready for him and remain faithful to him. And fourth and finally... The church is the building of Christ. Ephesians chapter number 2, verses 19 through 22 says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
The writer in this passage is calling our attention to the fact that we are the building of God, the temple of God. The temple at the time of the writing was a place of worship, and it was a place of the presence of God to reside on the people who worship God and exalt Him. Now the church, not this building, but the church, the people, are the temple of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we are to worship And we, as a church, are to be a house of worship. Church success is never measured about the events that we do. Church success is not about how many people show up on a Sunday morning. Church success is not about the creativity that's displayed. Church success is not about the size of the budget. But rather, the church is all about the worship that they give to their Creator. And I'm not just talking about the songs that we sing on Sunday. That is important. It's important to lift up the the Lord in corporate worship together. Corporate worship is powerful, and we see it in Scripture time and time again. But when I say that we are to be a house of worship, what I'm speaking of is that our life is to be worship to Christ. Our life is to be honoring to Christ. Our life is to bring glory and honor to Christ. Singing can be worship, and it should be worship to the Lord. But we're also called to be living sacrifices. Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God. When you look at everything that God's done for you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, this is your spiritual worship. It's the worship of our lives. Worship team, if you want, you can come back. It's the worship of our lives. Going through the assignment that the Lord has given us in life and saying, God, I'm doing this for your glory and for your honor. A.W. Tozer said something that so profounding for my life. read it years ago. It is not what a man does that determines if it is sacred or secular. It's why he does it. What is the slant of your heart And why are you doing what you're doing? Buddy Allen's a mechanic. I'm a pastor. My job is not more sacred than his. It's why do we do it? We're giving glory and we're giving honor to Cody is a butcher. My job is not more sacred than his. It's why do we do it? You see, when we talk about the body, God has placed us all together for a reason. I guarantee you in every single context that you're in, you have the opportunity to bring glory and honor to Jesus. Your life can be worship. Well, how does that work? Let's talk about Buddy for a second. I think it's worship when he does the best that he can for his customers. Why? Because that's what Christ does for us. He gave us his best. In a world where so many people are trying to cheat others out, when a Christian says, I'm going to do my best for someone else, I think it's worship to God. Why? Because it's contrast. That's not how we tend to work in life. We tend to try to get ahead. That's why time and time again, Scripture says when you're working for your master, work like you're working for the Lord, not to man. Because God's called us to do things differently. And our difference in our lifestyle is worship to God and allows us to be the temple of God. So when you look at all four of these analogies, The church is the flock. 
We listen to the great shepherd. The church is the body, so we do the work of Christ. The church is the bride, so we prepare ourselves and make ourselves ready. And the church is the building of God, so we worship God with everything that we do. When you look at those four analogies, you get a picture of what the church is supposed to do. And in those four things, we glorify Christ and we bring value to the world. And people see Jesus through our lifestyle. The question then becomes, what are we going to do about it as individuals? Because what's really interesting when you start looking at every single one of these analogies is that it's really kind of difficult to do all that together. It requires the individual believer to buy into those things. I'll give you a case in point. I can't force you to have the attitude of worship in everything that you do in life. That's on you and you only. I can't force you to follow Jesus and listen to his voice. That's on you and you only. But when we as individuals come to a place where we say, you know what? I'm bought into this. I'm going to live this out. I'm going to be the sheep towards my great shepherd. I'm going to be the bride who's preparing herself. I'm going to be the body. I'm going to be the building. When all of us collectively make those decisions, I promise you that Christ can work through us and do things that we never thought possible in our own lives, in our families, and in our community. And let me tell you something, church. Our world desperately needs churches who are bought into what Jesus is calling us to do. Nothing else is going to fix it. Nothing else can help. Would you please stand with me this morning? Today, before the pandemic, we would almost close out every single service with a time of prayer at the altars. Then this pandemic starts, we're all worshiping at home, and we come back, and we're not supposed to be close, and we wanted to follow all those. But church, let me tell you something. All these things we talked about today only are galvanized when we come to the Lord in prayer. And we can sing worship, and we should, and we can listen to the Word, and we should. There's a third very important element that's needed. We need to be a church of prayer. And right now, we need to be praying for ourselves, that we are walking right with the Lord, being the, being the church that He's called us to do. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters, that we can spur one another on. And we need to pray for our community.